Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber, and this is the podcast where we answer your questions. Uh, if you've already asked them on Patreon, especially, I answer them. If you are in the YouTube room, uh, please 
uh, room, to call it a room, channel, comment section, whatever it may be. But thanks to AJP and QTW, Gamma Vibes, Diagla, Alpha Charge, all those different people uh, who are in there at the moment. Uh, but if you are in there and you want to ask a question, you want it guaranteed to be answered. The best way of doing it, of course, is with a super chat. Just remember, I'm recording this on Tuesday. So if you're asking questions about the World Test Championship, by the time most people hear it, it's going to be out of date. So I probably won't be answering any of those. Uh, but if they are for the future or for something else, then obviously feel free to put them in. And if you desperately want them answered, the best way to do that is the Super Chat. But let us get to the, what are they called? <laughs> let us get to the Patreon questions to begin with. James says, what are some of the notable examples of international level bowlers getting the yips? Would Johnny Watkins and Chris Matthews fall into this category in particular? Are there any who have overcome a sustained bout of yips either to succeed as bowlers or that had to give up bowling and come back as batters? Um, a la baseball, Rick and Keel. Well, I suppose the most famous one of recent times would be George Dockrell. Uh, I, I've, I've asked a lot. I, I think he had the yips. It's, it's one of those things people don't really want to say. Um, and so from that perspective, I'm assuming that George Dockrell had the yips because he went from being a professional bowler to someone who didn't bowl anymore and is now a professional batter. He has started bowling again. But he's not particularly comfortable with his bowling uh, from having watched him uh, play, but also, you know, just uh, having listened to him talking about it at times. It's, you know, it's not exactly where he would like it to be. I think that's probably safe to say. So from that perspective, uh, George Dockrell is one of the best examples. I'm trying to think if there are many other. There's a couple of left arm finger spinners. Generally, I've heard it happen more with finger spinners, and it's usually people who are part timers who have troubles with it. So, Anchi Rath was the Hong Kong spinner. I think that's right. I think it was Anchi Rath who bowled absolutely beautiful in the nets. And then when they got him to bowl in the game, he bowled double bounces and the ball wouldn't come out of his fingers. I played cricket with Rosalie Birch, the England player, who I was actually keeping to her. She, she told me she'd had some problems. And so we went out in the warm-up and we warmed up absolutely beautiful. And then I think in the game, when she bowled her first ball, I think I caught it above the batter's head on the full. Uh, I think the next one might have bounced two or three times. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if Angie Rath went on to bowl. I think Rosalie just ended up being a batter at the back half of her career. I'm trying to think of anyone else. I can't think of any fast bowler who specifically yipped up to the point where they had trouble landing it. I mean, I think the one thing I would say is it's a bit different to golf. Like I suppose Ian Baker Finch is one of the biggest examples where Ian Baker Finch was a very highly skilled golfer and then suddenly he can't play anymore. From what I understand in cricket, the majority of the bowlers that I've heard this happen to were probably, it was their secondary skill to begin with and they did struggle with it. We have seen players like, I suppose, you know, Simon Kerrigan, for instance, was it Simon Kerrigan? I think that was his name, who certainly yipped up in one particular game. And I know in cricket, the theory is that left arm finger spinners um, have this problem more than anyone else. Uh, but I'm not sure it happens quite as much in cricket as you would think. I've certainly seen it happen a lot in club cricket, though. Uh, Patrick R says, Australia's test team has previously been thought about as having trouble closing out games. But during this cycle, as you mentioned in the video, that changed slightly. Do you think Boland has something to do with this? Uh I think yes, but not specifically because Boland's fantastic or, or anything from that perspective. But I do think that, you know, Hazelwood played a couple of games in this cycle. Nisa played a couple of games in this cycle. 
I feel like I'm missing another obvious seamer. I, I thought the biggest problem that Australian cricket had in those other situations was either over-rotation or under-rotation. So either bowlers were coming in and not getting a couple of tests in a row, or they were bowling until they were exhausted and they kept picking them because they were really good. And there was sort of no middle ground. I suppose with Boland being around, that gave them an, you know, an easy... For, you know, it wasn't like Pattinson and Siddle in 2019 where they were kind of thinking to themselves, well, Pattinson could be one of the best bowlers in the world and, and he's fit, so let's give him a go. And Siddle can bowl the wobble ball and he'll be good backup. In Boland's case, I think they know what Boland can do at this point. And, and I think that is slightly different. But I do think that a lot of that does come from that depth. Traditionally, Australia, obviously, and I don't just mean Australia here, I mean every team, would pick their best bowlers you know, all the way through a series. But traditionally, series were a lot longer, right? And even when they played in tour games, they weren't exactly bowling at full strength or anything like that. Now you do see, well, you see two things. I think probably since from the point that England started to, you know, Andy Flower started reading Moneyball, that idea of having Trot, Strauss and Cook, you know, grind out the, the opposition bowlers certainly was something that moved into test cricket. But we originally brought it on as a test by test thing. And then over time, we were playing the test matches so close, people were like, well, if we just take a lot of dot balls from, from their best bowlers, by the end of the series, they're not going to be their best bowlers. So I do think that has a part to it. Um, but I, I, and I don't mean this to be rude. Uh, some of it's just dumb luck as well with Australia closing out the matches in the same way that, you know, India struggled with South Africa and with um, Australia. I don't think, or England as well. I don't think that particularly means that, you know, Australia is a much better team. I just think that in this particular case, they were playing right to the end. And if, you know, sometimes they were tired, but the 2019 um, Ashes is a perfect example of Australia. They just decided um, to take their foot off the, the break. And I, I remember writing that at the time and a lot of people were getting really upset because obviously I do a lot of analysis and they're like, you can't just write that and they're trying as hard. And then they basically said that afterwards. They part, you could see the way they were parting after that fourth test. And I think that's a really, really important moment in their cricket because they parted like they had won the series when in actual fact they had retained the Ashes, not won the Ashes. And so they ended up not winning that, that particular Ashes for no reason. They were clearly the better side in, in that series, you know, even with everything that happened with, with Steve Smith. So I think from that perspective, they are maybe a little bit more mature and a little bit more cutthroat now than they were before. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure that Boland being in the side um, has much impact over the other than the fact that if he's taking his wickets at minus 12, um, then of course there's going to be, uh, you know, of course Australia are going to win more games because they've now got the greatest bowler in the history of mankind. They've got George Lohman 2.0. It says, in a hypothetical word, world, had Simon Harmer chosen to qualify for England, he could have by 2020, how much better would he have been how much better would you have made them as a test side, both pre and during baseball, baseball? By the way, baseball is such an annoying phrase because obviously it's not widespread enough that any spell check or Grammarly or my phone wants to ever write it down. Uh, so I do have to correct it every single time. I know some people don't like that phrase as well. Um, this has nothing to do with Ian's question. The reason I think a lot of us use baseball is, you know, I think it was Andrew Miller who came up with it at Crick Info. It's not because we like Andrew Miller. We quite clearly do not like Andrew Miller. But it's more to, it's more to do with the fact that it's a way of writing it without having to explain what you mean every single time. It, it's a catch-all. And it's, just, it's the same reason I came up with the, uh, with the pace playing 
pandemic. I wasn't trying to come up with something that people would talk about forever or would become this hugely prominent, prominent thing. But what I really needed was I couldn't stop and explain every single time what I meant. I had to, at a certain point, just put that out there. And it's the same with basketball. Anyway, uh, Simon Harmon. He, interesting. I think Simon Harmon said better bowler than Jack Leach. And I think certainly, although by 2021, 2022, Jack Leach becomes quite good. No, I think Simon Harmon is better now and was better then. So from that perspective, it would have made their side a little bit uh, stronger. Interestingly enough, because Joe Root is an off-spinner as well, I'd have to go and check how Harmer does specifically against right-handers. I don't think he would have a massive problem with them because I don't think you'd be as successful as he has been without being pretty good against right-handers. But because they do have someone who can certainly bowl to left-handers later in the innings, they really do need someone who can bowl to right-handers. And the Jack Leach combination works better than when they had Moinelli. You know, the Moinelli, Joe Root, combination doesn't work as well even if they are very different kinds of off spinners just because they have two of the same kind i would never say that you should pick a lesser spinner because they are not matching up with your batter who bowls a little bit but if you're looking at the total worth of simon hummer to a cricket team i do think that actually does play a role uh but i would have picked him ahead of leach especially in 2020 and i think he probably would have done pretty well how he would have played in baseball is quite interesting, but he can bat a little bit. He's obviously an incredibly confident cricketer as well, which I think helps in that kind of method. And by that stage, he knew, unlike Leach, who even in baseball had to learn how to find the best use of himself, Simon Harmer had worked that out years ago when no one was watching. Niran says, is David Hussey the best modern player to never play test cricket? To never play test cricket. Okay. Um, I think Glenn Chappell, I've said this a lot of times, he was absolutely fantastic. I'd be shocked if there hasn't been a fantastic Indian or Pakistani player who slipped through at times as well. Never to play test cricket is the other interesting one here. I think, and then we're talking about modern players as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's, he's probably right up there. He was a fantastic player. He was a very late bloomer. Even by Hussey standards, he was a very late bloomer. Couldn't get in the Western Australian side for a very long time. Now, obviously, they had a phenomenal batting lineup. You know, Goodwin, Gilchrist, uh, Langer, Martin, the other Hussey. Uh, who else have we got in there? Um, I feel like I'm missing a couple. Marcus North, Katic. Phenomenal batting, you know, that Western Australia had for a long period of time. That said, a lot of those players were at times not in the side. David Hussey had a famous brother. Um, I remember looking up once and he was fantastic in county cricket. He had an average in county cricket, and, and this may not have stayed all the way through the end of his career, but he had an average in county cricket of 65 and an average in shield cricket of 45. And so his first class record is brilliant. And I'm not saying he didn't earn that because he had to make those runs in county cricket. But remember, when he's playing, when he's playing county cricket, he's picked when he's already very, very good. And you know, basically, once he's sort of over the hill, they'll find another overseas player. Uh, Glenn Chapel is the one that always comes to mind for me. Um, it's probably something worth having a look at deeper uh, than I never have before. Um, but I would have thought that David Hussey. Should, he should be on a short list, but I don't think 
he would be the best player of modern times not to play one. In fact, if you want, if you want a fun one, Susie Bates is probably the best player not to have played a test, if we're being honest, if we're looking at men's and women's cricket. Uh, Abby says, have Ireland, or for that matter, Scotland, ever made a concerted attempt to have a team in the English first-class system? Uh, so I don't know if you know this, Abby, but Ireland and Scotland have played in the List A tournament before. So I'm not sure if, if, if you're asking English first class system, I'm not sure if that's what you also mean, but yes, they certainly did that. I know their best, uh, a lot of their best players already uh, are first class veterans, but it seems to me that excelling as a team, they would have better served long-term uh, aspirations than being thrown in the deep end of test cricket. It's really complicated. We have seen, I think we've seen the Netherlands, Ireland and Scotland all play within the domestic English competition before. We've seen it as well with Pakistan, Pakistan, not Pakistan. We've seen it with Zimbabwe uh, when they are playing in domestic cricket in South Africa at times. Namibia playing domestic cricket in South Africa. I feel like there's another obvious one I'm missing. I can't think of any off the, off, the, off the top of my head. It happens in other sports with New Zealand and Australia. Sometimes, you know, the strongest league would be the Australian League, so New Zealand players uh, will be involved in that. Um, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's really complicated on so many different levels of why it hasn't worked and why it doesn't stick around. And so I have talked to people from, well, certainly Ireland and Scotland before. I'm not sure if I've ever talked to anyone at the Netherlands about this. And there are people there that do share that and there are people that don't share that. And it's a awkward kind of position. But I think if you, if you go back, I think, Raul Dravid, did Raul Dravid play cricket for Scotland? Um, and Hansi Cronier played cricket for Ireland. I want to say all those things are true. Um, yeah, so Raul Dravid played cricket for Scotland uh, and Hansi Cronier played for Ireland. I think George Bailey played for Ireland, no, Scotland. Now I am confusing myself. Um, and the reason that these guys played for them, of course, is because they played for their domestic side, not their international side. But it's not simple. The counties probably don't necessarily want it. They would probably rather have the talented players themselves rather than that. It's certainly been mentioned uh, a lot over the years, but I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a situation where there's enough support from any one side to actually make it happen. And so I don't think it will happen again, although. I can see why um, it might happen uh, as I can see why on occasion, especially through women's cricket, it might be something that comes back, but I can't see it happening through the men's system as it currently stands. Although, you know, who knows with English domestic cricket, what's going to happen with that in the future. Aditya says, uh, you've often mentioned that India's spin quartet and West Indies pace quartet are very important milestones in cricket history. Among the two, who do you think was more influential in terms of long-term impact on the game? Uh, West Indies, bowling literally changed the play the way that we bowled in test cricket we went from a outswing dependent style of bowling to big tall guys banging the ball into the pitch uh we went from line and length merchants to you know people with more speed although most of the west indies bowls were pretty accurate as well but certainly speed became a bigger part of it you could say that helmets also played a role there i think what the quartet did was you know traditionally australia england and south africa Less so New Zealand, as far as I'm aware, but certainly the other three and, and West Indies um, were very spin dependent. 
Now, a lot of this is to do with pitches and how pitches change over the years and covered versus uncovered wickets and all these different things. But just as they're moving away from all that, India is, India, it would have been very easy for India to follow a, sim, a, a similar path. And there had certainly been many times in, in the past where India probably went in with far too many seam bowlers considering that their seam wasn't particularly strong. So I do think from that perspective, there was an impact on, you know, play your best bowlers even when they're spinners. But if you look at it, it's not like today India is playing um, Ashwin and Jadeja and Akshar Patel away from home. Not always even getting um, Ashwin and Jadeja in the same test match, you know, Habajan and Kumble. And you could say the same with Pakistan and, and Sri Lanka as well. So I think it had a pretty big impact at the time, though, because I'm not sure, I don't think it directly influenced what the West Indies did, but there was a way of playing cricket that was, that everyone kind of followed because it's how England had played the game and then how Australia sort of did it. And then, you know, uh, everyone was kind of in that mold. And then what India kind of said was, no, well, we're good at this, so we're going to try this. Does that lead to the West Indies four fast bowlers? Probably not directly, but maybe indirectly or subconsciously it played a part of, you know, at a certain point, you just pick your best bowlers. So I do think that um, the West Indies one, I don't think I can ever be understated. We still have, you know, big tall bowlers uh, coming in and, and hitting the middle of the wicket. So, you know, from that pers perspective, I think it was far more important. And even now, you would say that there haven't been many times when anyone's had that sort of another quartet of finger spinner bowl, or, or sorry, spin bowls, they went at finger spinners. Uh, but I, I don't think anyone's ever had it as interchangeable or as role dependent, perhaps as those guys were. But you do get situations now where te teams, when they travel, are much more likely to play their strengths than their weaknesses than they were before. Of course, cricket has changed so much now that you know. Sri Lanka's had great seam bowling and India's had great seam bowling. Obviously, Pakistan always has. Uh, Bangladesh has now some really quality. So I think in some ways, things have changed naturally anyway. Aditya says, uh, what do you think is Australia's best pace bowling lineup for this English summer? Can you see Boland and Nisa playing in the same match? Well, their best pace bowling lineup is Hazelwood, Cummins, Stark, probably still. We know that they don't particularly trust Stark in the UK. and also. This whole thing with him and swinging the ball and the wobble ball, I'm not sure they're, they're quite as all-in on Stark as they have been in the past. Um, so they could easily play Boland instead of Stark, but then you do have two kind of similar bowls in him and Hazelwood. I'm not sure in England that's a big problem, especially when Pat Cummins is someone who's able to you know, bowl quick and short, and they've got Cameron Green who can bowl quick and short. They've got plenty of other options if they need that extra pace for the tail enders and everything else. Uh, so that's their best bowling. I don't think Boland and Nisa are, need to play in the same side together, but that probably will come down to injuries or resting and rotating and, and everything else. Like at this stage, we probably look far less likely like Hazelwood is going to play the majority of the test matches. As I said, it depends on how they feel about Mitchell Stark. So there is a possibility that Boland and Nisa play together, but that isn't the best bowling lineup. Uh, I, I, I'd be... You know, I can't imagine anyone would be massively keen on saying that that was the, the best option when it came to the bowling lineup. Anyway, we're going to take a short break here. And then after the break, uh, we will be back with more questions from Patreon. And then I'll have a look around the room as well. You're listening to Uncover. No, what's the podcast? Wagon Wheel. <laughs> they look the same to me. You're listening to Wagon Wheel with Jared Kimball.
NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. All right. Welcome back. Let us go through a few more of the Patreon questions. And then we'll have a look if there's anything in the room. Remember, if you are listening to Wagon Wheel on YouTube and you're here in that room now, like many people are, feel free to uh, send a super chat if you absolutely, positively have to get your question answered. Uh, Abby says, someone attempting to complete an in a, compete in an adult rec league with no real training, I find that my biggest batting deficiency uh, is unable to get rid of the instinctive leg side shuffle when facing pace deliveries angled into me. I move away from the line of the ball, exposing my stumps and often end up bold. Is this primarily psychological? Do the pros struggle with this too? What could I do to force myself to stay behind the line? Uh, professional bowlers sometimes struggle with it. My, my son's doing it at the moment and I put a bucket behind him and every time he knocks over the bucket, I beat him with it. No, well, not yet, but you know we might eventually get there. Uh, that's what Ranji did. So one of the greatest, uh, when you talk about the pros, Ranji basically invented a new shot. I think he was, oh, I'd have to have a look. Did he have a block of concrete behind him or, or something along those lines when, when he was playing to keep him in line? Look, it's, it's a hard ball and it's coming at you and your natural instinct is to move away. The best way I could probably help you would be if you start a trigger movement that goes back and across so if you start with a leg stump line for instance uh, leg stump guard for instance with your toes on leg stump uh, as the bowler is about to release the ball put your back foot towards um, off stump i would assume then the movement of going in that direction will stop you from then going back the other way. Um, or you can try my bucket method if you want. But essentially, it's a psychological thing. It's very, very common in young cricketers. It's very, very common in fast bowlers when they're not very good at batting and they have to face fast bowlers. Um, it's not an easy thing to overcome, I don't think. But those are the those are the two methods that I I always felt when I was facing a very fast bowler. Not that I not that I would back away myself, but that that back and across method would make me go, well, now you have to play the ball. You're now in the line of the stumps. You don't have a choice. And, and I felt that that made me face fast bowlers uh, much better uh, from that perspective. So I don't know if that will help you. But I would have thought just the moving across means that you're not staying leg side of, of the ball and then you know, you're know you not do- backing away. But yeah, very, very common. Um, and it's certainly something that you see a lot in cricket. Satchmo says, how many test cricketers have India produced from low cast backgrounds? Uh, I don't have the numbers. I, I think is, um, oh my God, I've forgotten his name. Vinod Kambli is, I suppose, one of the more famous ones. Uh, I, you know, there's, I f- want to say KK or Mongo wrote the big piece on this for Crick Info. I feel like that's correct. Um, it's not many. And a lot of the reasons, of course, is that, and you can have a look, this, this happens really right across well, world cricket. It comes into Asian cricket as well that, you know, cricketers from the right kind of families know the right kind of people who end up in the right kind of area, go to the right kind of schools, use the right kind of equipment, all those sorts of things. So, you know, accessing equipment, a lot of Asian cricketers, and we know this through the bowlers, really, don't we? Because the bowlers are 
how many how many times do you have to hear on the IPL coverage? He wasn't even using a cricket ball until he was twenty four. Yeah, that's not a that's a problem. That's not that's not a positive thing. It's a great story for this particular person, but there's an issue there, and that a lot of cricketers from you know lower caste, lower socioeconomic groups, people from the wrong schools, and everyone else don't always have access to the cricket equipment. The actual cricket skills not a problem. I think. Verinder Saywag, I don't think, was particularly from low cast, but he was certainly someone who spent a lot of time batting, uh, you know, against tape balls. You know, you've got Wazim Akram, uh, Lasif Malinga, in fact, heaps of Sri Lankan seam bowlers uh, have seemingly come to cricket very, very late. I think they've got another one recently. It was a volleyballer. Um, I want to say he was in the army. I've completely forgotten his name, but um, Sri Lankan fans will know who I'm talking about there. So that because of the amount of times we see bowlers break through, we can only imagine that so many batters haven't broken through. But cricket, there is a, and this isn't just an India thing. This is right across the game. We, we you know, we did a podcast with Dan Gallen a, a while back now about specifically why there aren't as many black African batters who do very well. And a big part of it is they can't, don't have access to proper equipment. You know, they, you know, pads and bats and facing proper cricket balls. To go back to the previous question, you know, it's if, if you're a bowler and you're running in and you, you, you're very good with your wrist or you're very fast or whatever it may be, you're just all you're doing is putting a different ball in your hand. There's a couple of different changes, but it's not that, that uh, different. But if you're used to playing against rubber balls or tennis balls or tape balls or anything of that nature, you know, it's a big difference facing someone at 85 miles an hour bowling with one of those balls than it is bowling 85 miles an hour with a ball that can break your skull. So I think right across cricket, there's always been a class issue. And, it, and it's different for different places. It generally, though, we notice a lot more in the batting than we do in the bowling. And I think a lot of that comes down to, I think it was, was it Shane Watson who was selling cricket gear really cheap because when his son, I think this is right, when his son started playing, son or daughter maybe, um, he realized how expensive cricket gear was and that people like him when he was younger may not have come through. And, you know, I've seen the same with, with my kids as well. You know, you look at some of these prices and go, how is, how is, how are kids who, from non-traditional cricket family going to even convince their parents to buy them this stuff, right? How are kids from poor families, you know, from low caste families, from whatever you want it to be, how are they going to ex expect, you know, uh, afford all this sort of stuff? And it's a big issue, I think, uh, across cricket. And I, I don't specifically know, unless Shane Watson's um, uh, business takes off around the world or, you know, there's a way of subsidizing it. I don't know really how you fix that issue. Niran says, Dunajay De Silva averages lower on CrickBuzz than on CrickInfo. What now? I've seen the lower average on TV broadcast as well. I assume it's because he has retired hurt twice. Does retired, retired hurt count as out or not out? It counts as not out. So if that is the difference, then someone has made an error on their score sheets. Does the ICC handle any player stats? As an avid DDS fan, what do you make of this injustice? I love that it's him. So I'm actually kind of excited that uh, DDS is involved in a weird stats loop, loophole. And I will be now going off to see uh, why Crick Buzz is different to Crick Info. Uh, the ICC doesn't have anything to do with cricket stats. It's as far as I'm aware, they don't have an official statistician. I know, uh, is it Dave Kendricks? I think is his name, who does the uh, rankings. But I don't think they have an official stats. Obviously, there is the, um, I always get this wrong, and they probably hate me for it, but the Association of uh, Cricket Scorers and Statisticians. 
which I would say is probably closer to the official one. And then there's Crick Info, which is also, you know, when it comes to stats, far more used than Crick Buzz um, is. So probably is, is closer to being official. I would say that Crick Info and, and um, you know, the Stats Association, the Scores and Stats Association are far more rigorous than anything that the ICC does. I have heard that the ICC is thinking about getting involved in that more. And, uh, you know, perhaps even, you know, getting advanced analytics and stuff in as well and, and other staff to help them. But that was a couple of years ago I heard about that, probably before the COVID. And in this current environment of uh, the ICC, I just don't see how they would be able to push that through. But the answer is that, yeah, if you really want the official stuff, um, you would have to go, and I'm, I'm going to have to look it up. It's cricket. <laughs> Got a picture of... Raul Dravid playing for Scotland on my computer. Cricket statisticians and scorers. And it starts with a the ACS. There it is. So the best place um, to talk about all those sorts of things, but I don't know if they have all the stats up themselves, um, is the ACS. Um, so the Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians. The other place I would say that is really, really accurate, but you do have to pay for it now, is... Oh my God, why have I forgotten the name? Cricket Archive, which is also absolutely brilliant. But the truth is that we live in a Schrodinger's cat? Schrodinger's dog? Yeah, Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> Pavlov's dog, yeah. We live in a Schrodinger's cat life when it comes to cricket stats in that, you know, there are... Jack Hobbs has 197 first-class hundreds, but he also has 199 first-class hundreds. There are lots of anomalies when you actually go through all the systems. And it's a really, really common thing. Uh, and they all argue about it. I'm sure even the Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians, the ACS, I'm sure they argue about it. That's kind of their deal, right? So there is no official, and I'm not sure that there ever particularly will be an official stat, uh, you know, stat database the way that cricket is run. So if it annoys you, I hate to tell you, but there's probably heaps more of these out here. I'm trying to, th trying to think, well, the Hobbs one is the most famous one where literally the man made so many hundreds uh, that we, we don't know how many hundreds he made. Um, it's an absolutely remarkable uh, world from that. And also remember, I'm not sure if this is the, still the case, but there was one particular scorebook of Sachin Tendulkar's career that, we, that went missing. So when he played an early test match, and so we didn't have his exact strike rate. And so different places had it as different, uh, slightly different in that case. And I think that scorebook was found, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But yes, there's those sorts of things, unfortunately, are just part of cricket. I, in some ways, I think it makes it cooler. Um, but, you know, if I, if I do go through and work out that uh, Crick Buzz made a mistake, uh, I will be contacting Barrett and making him fix it personally. I don't even know if he can fix it, but I'll be making him fix it perfectly uh, uh, himself. Uh, thank you very much, everyone on Patreon. Remember, it's the best way to support us. Uh, huge thanks to everyone that, do uh, that does. It allows us to, well, we've upped our amount of podcasts, so there'll be more content. We'll be very, very soon spinning off into a new YouTube, well, a couple of new YouTube channels, but the, the most prominent one will be that the podcast things will go off to a new thing, uh, to a new channel on their own and have the more mood board and video essays and last knocks and everything will, will stay on this channel just because there's so much content now. Sometimes we have to put, there was recently where we had to put two videos up within 12 hours or 10 hours of each other. It's just too much. 
So we're going to separate them. So we know some people love the uh, the YouTube podcast and other people just want to see the longer video. So, you know, everyone can get exactly what they want. But Patreon allows me to know how many staff I can buy, you know, for the year and, and you know, uh, book people for long periods of time. You know, people like Bayram and, and, um, and Cheyenne and everyone else who's, who's been helping out. So if you can support us there, that is absolutely great. But you could also send a super chat, which you could send right now. But for now, let's have a quick break. All right, welcome back. Uh, it's getting it's getting dark out here, everyone. Uh, to what's this podcast called? Wagon Wheel. Uh, sorry, I'm doing it early if you're on YouTube this week. But as I said, there's big test match on, and I kind of figured that if I had to do it one night after a test match, my head would explode. So this is a much better use of my time. So thank you to everyone for popping on uh, or a day or two early than we usually record this. Uh, we've got a bunch of questions in the chat, uh, and the first one is from Aditya, who sends in a super chat. So huge thanks to him. Says, do you think the impact sub rule in the IPL, where you're effectively playing with 12, could mean that India produces lesser quality all-rounders? So this question gets asked a lot. I still think all-rounders are really important, even within that rule. And I've even said, I will take it further. I think eventually, I don't know how many players, but you might get 12, 13, 14, maybe even 15 players in an 11. You won't get 15 players in 11 unless you dice them up. Uh, 15 players in a cricket team where you can use 10 batters and five bowlers. All-rounders are still important in that because you still want the sixth bowling option and you're going to want the seventh bowling option on, on occasion. And if you do have someone who is like Shohail Otani, uh, the, the Japanese baseballer, I think even baseball have now worked out that, oh, actually, this is quite handy. We now have a whole extra player available to us. So... I've always thought that eventually all-rounders would be less common as cricket gets more and more professional because we saw that happen in baseball. But also, I just think the athletes are changing. At the moment, I'm not sure that my theory on that particularly holds up. And the reason it doesn't hold up is you know, Green, Jadeja, Stokes, Holder, Shakib, probably missing someone else in there as well. It still feels like all-rounders are coming through. But no, I'm not particularly worried about that because I still, uh, your, your question there, Aditya, just because I do think that all-round skills are still going to be really important going ahead. Also, the other thing is worth remembering, it's not the only league that's doing it. And I think eventually most leagues will have these sorts of rules um, coming in. Felix with the super chat says, love your work. I have a memory of you wanting to do a video on AFL's effect on cricket. Uh, are there any plans to make that happen in the future? All right, so I've got, Felix on my whiteboard here just for this summer 28 video ideas I have in my notebook probably another 40 to 50 ideas um, that's not even including this I'm not even sure if this one that you're right which I have wanted to do before and will do one day it's another one that is um it's always there, but not necessarily. Um, I don't think I've got notes for it or I've started to, you know, do a flow chart for it or anything like that or any brainstorming. So, yes, I would like to do it. When I will do it, I don't know. I think it's a fascinating topic. I think the professionalism of cricket really comes from Australia and that really comes from a combination of the Olympic movement and Aussie rules football. Uh, you know, the head of cricket, uh, you know, the Cricket Australia or the Australian Cricket Board at that time were based right next to, you know, where the footy was being played. There's uh, a lot of overflow there. I, I think in general, Australian cricket is influenced by 
Aussie rules football, which is, I think cricket is played as more of a team sport in Australia than it is in other countries, partly because of, the, you know, the combination there. Plus, of course, Aussie rules football was invented to actually give cricketers something to do in the winter themselves. There's the indigenous angle as well, which is really, really interesting, which of course, the first indigenous team that was supposed to tour England that never quite made it was being run by the guy who would go on to invent, um, you know, or codify uh, Aussie rules football. So there's so many things there. Plus, I've talked about this a lot, the, the final structure and everything else. Um, a lot of, you know, cricket.com.au, again, is very much taken from that AFL um, type, uh, type style. So there's all these little things there. I actually, this piece came, I, I probably won't do it this summer just because there's going to be so much going on. Oh, I have, we haven't even talked about the fact that, you know, Shane Warne, Simon O'Donnell, Jamie Siddons, Max Walker, Keith Miller, uh, are missing a bunch, but they all played professional football and obviously, um, you know, top level cricket at times. So yeah, there's, there's those sorts of, um, overlaps as well so it, it is a very very interesting but yeah i think this summer might be a good one there'll be so many australians around for the ashes I, I had a great chat years ago with david secker about this actually where we were we were actually going through i can't remember when this was it was certainly when he was bowling coach of england and he was at the back of the press box and he heard me talking about footy and he came over and we were going through all the players and the reputations they had as cricketers so ricky uh, sorry as, as football players or as cricketers so ricky ponting was one that obviously was thought to be a very good footballer matthew wade probably becomes a professional footballer if it wasn't for the fact that he got cancer then you've got the other you know mitchell marsh could have gone in aussie rules football all played cricket um and then you've got you know people like jonathan brown i I think I want to say he, Jonathan Brown was a big left arm fast bowler, but he was certainly a fast bowler. I think you know uh, Luke Hodge was another one. There's all these players that had these reputations that that are thought of as being very good cricketers. And in fact, uh, Felix, I played crick, indoor cricket against Lance Whitnell once, um, and he off about five paces. He was very very quick. I don't think he would have been a bowler, and he smashed me everywhere when he was batting. In fact, I've played professional. Not professional. I played amateur sport against Lance Whitnell twice, and he's absolutely towed me up. Um, so more than happy to never go up against him in any sport ever again. But so that you know, there's that angle as well. There's also a very very interesting one, which is Slug Jordan, the sort of famous underage uh, football coach who was a Victorian wicketkeeper for a very long time, and you know, one of Ian Chappell's least least favorite people. But yeah. Uh, it's a great topic, and as you can just tell from the last couple of minutes, uh, I've got a lot to say about it, and there's certainly a lot out there. And I don't think that many people outside of, certainly outside of Melbourne or, or, or Adelaide or Western Australia or Tasmania, really understand if you follow cricket, sometimes you do see things come up and you're like, oh, I see where this has come from. Uh, and it does happen more often than not. And of course, my favorite one, of course, is the IPL final system. Uh says... Why do the best batters in the world bat at number four in tests? When did this trust, uh, trend start? The trend starts with Tenduka, Callis. I'm missing someone obvious there. There's a third one there. Maybe Inzi? I'm not sure if he ever batted at number three. Uh, but it, it really starts when those guys start to bat at number four. And then it kind of, you know, within a, a short period of time, the number three position was no longer seen as the position where you put your best player, which up until that point, you, either your best player was an opener because they were an opener or they were a number three and number four. And it really comes from the point that they realize that you're putting a number three in a position where they might have to face the second ball of the game. So do you want your best batter to face the second ball of the game? No, you're probably going to make more runs. And I think Zoltzman did this. 
And it's something I've talking about, you know, the last question from Felix, uh, talking about things that I really want to do videos on. I'm pretty sure that from 2000 to 2010 was the first time ever that number fours either made more runs than number threes or batted um, or averaged more. I can't remember which one. It might have been both. So there is a distinctive move where people are like, no, we're not going to have our best player at number three anymore. The idea before that was, of course, that your number three um, set the agenda a lot more, but that was more of an Australian, maybe South African feeling, uh, West Indian as well. In England and New Zealand, I think they saw the number three position as sort of a backup opener. And I think those two things all melded together. But essentially, it's easier to bat at number four. If you've got someone who will average 47 batting at number three and 51 averaging at number four, you probably prefer to have them at number four and then have maybe you know a secondary opener who won't be damaged as much by the new ball going up. That's the theory. Whether that works or not, it's, I mean, someone, a, a cricketer asked me this recently. And he, and he said, what's the difference between batting, you know, three and four and four and five? And I was like, 60 balls. And he looked at me really puzzled. And I was like, that, we have a look at about every 60. Or I think it might be slightly less than that now in, in test cricket. So there is a big difference. <laughs> so it does matter. Uh, Alpha says, why don't the ICC bring back timeless tests for WTC uh, finals? Because it could go for 12 days. People have other things to do. They would have to rent out the grain f- ground. For, you know, It means that for the Oval, how would Surrey go? They'd have to change things. They'd have to change corporate events. They'd have to change uh, ceremonies and uh, sponsored arrangements and all this sort of stuff. Like It's just not how modern world works. And to be honest, it wasn't how they used to work in the old days. I think a lot of people think that timeless tests were really common. They weren't that common. Um, they were played a little bit in... I want to say Australia, uh, of West Indies. There was a little bit in South Africa. But even then, a lot of those timeless tests obviously had to finish earlier because of other uh, arrangements. It didn't work then. It's certainly not going to work now. Cody says, exit interview for the remaining two IPL teams. Yeah, I, I will get around to it. There's, there's seven, seven, eight test matches in England this, this summer. There, I'd love to do something on the on the qualifiers. I'm sure there's other things I haven't even thought. Oh, Major League Cricket's coming up. I'd love to do heaps of different things on heaps of different topics, but I am one man and Cheyenne does try and help me. But essentially, you know, I'm, I'm doing the majority of this on my own. That's another reason we want to split the, the channel up as well, though, so that we do have more room on the channel to do more things. But the exit interviews aren't going anywhere, right? As long as I get the exit interviews out before the the auction, we're all good. Uh, Stop non. Swapnanil says, the way Ireland are playing test cricket with little international experience they have, do you think they would have done better than Bangladesh if they played 23 years of test cricket? I mean, they were obviously a lot worse than Bangladesh in the late 80s, early 90s. The I forget what it's called. It's got like a great name, isn't it? Is it the Bouncing Leprechaun or something? But the Green Tiger, is that what it was called? When all the money came into Ireland in the 90s through the tech companies, when Ireland was like, I don't know, de facto uh, Silicon Valley type place. I think at that point, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of overseas professionals came in and they got a lot better. I don't. I think they, they had some very good players, um, like Halliday and Lewis and uh, O'Rourke in their history. But I don't think if they got test status in 1980, oh well, wait, well, let's go back to when in 1999. I think they. That, I mean, they would have really, really struggled to a point where in some ways they had to get all their ducks in order before they got into test cricket, which didn't happen in Bangladesh, right? Bangladesh got 
weren't thought of as the next team in Scotland where everyone thought Scotland would be the next team in or Kenya would be the next team in. They were probably both a little bit more ready because of the way that their cricket structures were set up. Although Scotland was incredibly amateur as well. And obviously Kenya's had its own issues, but they probably had better cricketers at the time and, you know, could have come in. But the truth is, and you know, we talked about this on a previous episode very recently. There's no like amount of time that, you know, at a certain point, you need test bowlers. Like New Zealand weren't particularly good until Richard Hadley came along. Sri Lanka and Pakistan were very lucky to have incredible test bowlers really, really early on. Even a team like Zimbabwe had a decent test bowling attack. Essentially, you can't win test matches until you have a very, very good bowling lineup that can travel. And, and uh, until that point, you're not going to win consistently. And batters are really, really handy at making you not lose as much or uh, making your losses not look as bad but you can't win test matches without bowlers. And so if that's the case, if, if Ireland have been playing the last 23 years, just based on having done the history on them, I don't think since Alan Lewis, they've had many bowlers that, that Lewis and Halliday, so they were both probably first-class level cricketers and good cricketers. I don't remember too many other bowlers out there who, uh, well, there certainly weren't any test quality bowlers out there with Ireland. So I don't think Ireland would have fared that much better. Having said that, they're very good. They were very good at becoming professional very quickly. Perhaps they could have done that earlier in a way that it was tougher for Bangladesh. That, that's a fair question, I think. Uh, Jugal says, uh, do you see a path for leagues with IPL ownership like SA20 and MLC to be profitable ventures and keep playing higher salaries without Indian player participation and limited Indian viewership? I think Major League Cricket, certainly. Uh, uh, everything would be better if Indians were watching and Indians were playing. But I think Major League Cricket, and it may not work because that, things don't seem to be going as smoothly over there as it looked like they were going to. But that one, I think, can completely work without... Um, any need for um, the Indians. That doesn't mean that wouldn't be boosted by that, but I think that can work. I don't know how the South African tournament is ever anything more than a feeder league anyway. I'm not sure it needs to be profitable or the CPL once the IPL owners are in involved. You know, it's more like a minor league at that point. Um, I would, for me anyway. Now, that's obviously not what the SA20 organizers would feel, but I do feel from that perspective, that's kind of where it's going. That's why I would have bought South African teams. I was, you know, contacted by an IPL team about, you know, which CPL team they should go for. And I very much looked at it as a feeder situation, not a, you're eventually going to make money off this franchise situation. Not, not that you can't, but it's not the same. Crick Crazy Nix says, and hello to you, Crick Crazy Nix. Do you think R. Ashwin, and, and follow him on um, tw the Twitters, um, if you can. Do you think Ashwin is one of the few bowlers, maybe Jimmy at times, with over 400 test wickets, but never quite considered good enough to play away from home as a definite starter? I think, Crick Crazy Nicks, if you go through, I mean, th those guys are going to end up with over 400 wickets, so they stand out. But if, if you would look at what is a good amount or a great amount of wickets for any bowler in the history of cricket, at any period, there probably are bowlers that occasionally have been a little bit like this. And you're missing Broad, who I think is the most obvious one. I would put Harbhajan is maybe the other one um, that I would have up there. Also, if I'm not mistaken, I wonder, Anil Kumble would have played a lot more at home than he did away. He was certainly... He, so Harbhajan, Ashwin, Kumble, Harath, Broad, Anderson. I think they come from quite specific areas. So if you're good in West Indies as a bowler, 
you're probably going to be good everywhere. And I think that's the same with Australia, Pakistan bowlers, you know, a few different countries. I don't think that's the same with all countries, though. I think certain countries, and, and I think England and Asia in general, but India and Sri Lanka probably more specifically, and maybe Bangladesh now as well, produce particular kinds of cricketers that don't transfer over as well into test cricket outside their home area. And I think that's very similar for New Zealand seamers traditionally and clearly England seamers. You know, that sort of fast, medium, medium, fast type of bowler doesn't transfer as much. And it's always been a problem for English cricket from that perspective. Of course, Anderson and Broad were faster. A lot of theirs might be to do with age as well and everything else. I think, I, I think I've changed my mindset on this. Obviously, you would prefer to have Pat Cummins or Dale Steen or Glenn McGrath or Shane Warne or Murali when you're when you're looking at an all-time great, just because you can basically bowl them anywhere, right? But I don't think that's it. I don't think it's particularly the fault of the bowlers that they come from an environment that breeds them in a very one-dimensional way. Australian batters, all these years later, still struggle with the ball moving sideways. So where do we put David Warner in the all-time great batters? Because he would have one of the highest batting averages of any opener ever. But we know a huge amount of that comes from batting in Australia in home conditions. But he does, doesn't handle the ball going uh, from side to side, as well as other players do. It's a really, it's a really fascinating question, and I think I think about it a little bit differently than I would have five years ago, and certainly fifteen or twenty years ago. And I think Ashwin and Anderson are probably a big part of that of how I have changed my thinking. Um, but yeah, uh, McGill is obviously another one. There and there was a lot of if you go back in history, there's a lot of England bowlers with incredible bowling averages, and they almost never play outside of England or New Zealand for the same sorts of reasons. So I don't think this is as new. The difference is they're not over 400 wickets because they don't stick around long enough, right? Uh, and Felix just says, uh, level of detail is great. Uh, love it. Can the pies? Yep. Uh, it's gonna be a weird year for me. I've got nuggets in the finals, and uh, the pies are doing very well. One. In fact, I do have a secondary hat, but I can't wear this one, Felix, at night. I don't even see if you can see the logo. It's blacked out. But um, I do have a Magpies hat here, um, but it doesn't work with the lighting at night in my room because the hat sits too low. That's the kind of level of detail you get on the Wagon Wheel podcast. Remember, if you're ever in the, the chat, you can ask questions anytime. Uh, and if you want them guaranteed, obviously, Super Chat is the best way to go. But big thanks to Amen and William and Anya Avat and uh, Niranu78 and Vam and everyone else uh, for coming in into the chat again tonight. Um, it looks like it's actually quite um, pumping at times uh, going through. So a big thanks to everyone uh, for um, supporting us and everything else. Huge week coming up. We will be launching the new podcast channel, but if you are on this channel and you don't want to, you don't have to go over there straight away. But we will be doing that, and obviously, any support you can give us will be very, uh, very, very use, uh, handy. We're relaunching Double Century very, very soon. Uh, hopefully, this weekend if we get a chance. But if not, it will be uh, very, very soon. Uh, we've got bunches of videos. As I said, I've got too many ideas on the board uh, beside me, and it's going to be a very fun week for the World Test Championship. But if you're a Test cricket lover, you know 
you know, I know some of you like T20 cricket. And I know some of you love uh, test cricket. And I understand that at different times, I'm going to have to follow different things depending on who's paying me and what's actually being played. But we're about to come up with a lot of great test content over the next couple of months. I've got some incredible uh, videos I can't wait to make. And, um, you know, me and Muku and Cheyenne and uh, AJ and uh, congrats to Maida, um, who's who's off at the moment doing more important things. Uh, but but uh, uh, huge congratulations to her. But everyone who works on the team and, you know, Nick and Ishit and everyone else, you know, we're, we've got heaps of, of stuff and we want to thank you all for all your support. Um, and, you know, any way you can help out, uh, we'll, we'll take it all from likes to um, friendly comments and, and uh, subscribing and, and Patreon, everything you can do. But thanks so much. And I'll see you again after the World Test Championship, I suppose. Well, depending on how long it goes, could be six days. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Ecucinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.